Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. It was September of 1978, and a young man from Corpus Christi, Texas, was going NASCAR Cup Series racing. The driver, Terry Labonte, a young man that was making quite a name for himself on the short tracks of Texas. He preferred to start at North Wilkesboro Speedway, Richmond Raceway, or maybe even Nashville Speedway, but his team owner, Billy Hagan, said, no, we're going to start you at the Southern 500 at Darlington Raceway. Wow. If Labonte wasn't worried, he should have been. It's the track known as the toughest one-groove oval in all of NASCAR. Labonte had never seen the historic 1.366-mile egg-shaped oval. No worries. Remarkably, he finished fourth behind race winner Cale Yarborough, second place Darrell Waltrip, and third place Richard Petty. Funny thing, media members in the press box mispronounced the rookie's name Terry Labonte and Terry Labonte and misspelled the name in their stories even worse than they said it, but it didn't matter. They were sure the finish was a fluke and one-off lucky day. Boy, were they wrong. Fast forward two years later to September 1980 when the Cup Series came back to Darlington. There were two laps to go in the 367-lap event. The crafty old Silver Fox David Pearson was leading with Dale Earnhardt second, Benny Parsons third, Neil Bonnet fourth, Labonte was a surprising fifth, a position he had held pretty much all afternoon. The way they were racing, you'd have thought there was a million dollars on the line. In a blink of an eye, Pearson, Earnhardt, and Parsons crashed hard in turn one after someone dropped a streak of oil on the track, leaving the leaderboard in complete disarray. In those days, the driver that got back to the caution flag first was the winner, and Labonte knew it. Coming off of turn four, Labonte wheeled his undamaged Chevrolet up to Pearson's rear bumper and dropped low, beating the 10-time Darlington winner at the line by a mere three feet to take his first career Cup Series victory at only 23 years of age. Some 70,000 fans went crazy after witnessing an amazing underdog victory right before their eyes. The 2016 NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee drove the number 44, the 1984 Cup Series Championship, as well as six of his 22 Cup Series victories. He recorded four additional wins with team owner Junior Johnson before joining team owner Rick Hendrick in 1994. There, he logged 12 wins in the 1996 Cup Series Championship. For Terry Labonte, it all began with an amazing afternoon at Darlington in 1980 while driving car number 44. Yeah, that was a great uh, item that you had about Terry Labonte and Darlington Raceway. And 
You know, let's just, we're going to go right into it today about the number 44 car. And, you know, Terry, obviously, um, you know, he won six races in that 44, but there's a little bit more of a history to that number as well, too. As I looked up on Racing Reference, the number 44 has started 1,009 races in NASCAR Cup history, and 13 times it's gone to victory lane, 157 top fives, 326 top tens, and 28 poles. But let's talk more about Terry Labonte. I mean, you know, this is a guy that, you know, uh, is just a spectacular guy. Won, uh, you know, obviously uh, won a number of races, won two championships, and he did it very hard way. He he won them 12 years apart, once in 1984 and the other time in 1996. Um, you know, he won six times in the number 44 car. And, of course, Terry Labonte, like I said, is in the NASCAR Hall of Fame as well, too. Ben, I mean, when you look at a guy like Terry Labonte, I mean, he came from, you know, this south of Texas, just like his younger brother, Bobby, you know, he, these guys, you know, they made their way from, you know, from virtually nothing. And they became such great racers and, you know, won a number of races, the, the Hall of Fame, all the accolades you can imagine. Terry Labonte is a very special guy, in, in my opinion, and, and I'm sure he is in, in your, 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 all the dealings you've done with him. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, your thoughts about Terry Labonte and, you know, just the relationship you've had with him over the years. Oh, I tell you what, Jerry, he is such an incredible guy. And, you know, and it, the, I guess the word that comes to my mind when you think about Terry is it, he doesn't, I, I don't think of him as being a guy who would make his living doing 200 miles an hour on Sunday afternoons. He's so so laid back i mean good grief if you look back at those videos of when he won the 1980 uh, southern 500 and he gets out of the car and he's probably the calmest guy in the world to to have just driven 367 laps and to, to have finished the race the way he did he was running like i say sixth or seventh that day and suddenly everything the parting of the red sea so to speak he everybody crashes and there he is Oh my gosh, I'm in I'm in a position to win this thing. And then the the most craftiest silver fox, David Pearson, who's won 10 times there at Darlington, suddenly he's in trouble. And he's like, Wow, this thing's gonna go to me if I can just get around that uh that Hawaiian Tropic number one car that, that David's in. And suddenly he's he's standing in victory lane and he looks like deer in the headlights. He's like, How did I get here? And and what how did this just happen? But he, even in the interview he's doing with Chris Economaki that day, he's like, yeah, guess what? Guess we won the race. Wow, this is so cool. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, can and that, and that was what's so neat about Terry. When you would talk to him, you say, uh, Terry, can you tell us about? Why well, I, I remember this. I remember when he won the the Winston at Charlotte, and he just won two hundred thousand dollars. Terry, can you tell us about this win? Oh wow, it's great. <laughs> Terry, come on, man, you just won two hundred thousand dollars. Can you expand on that? Uh, yeah, it's it's really great. <laughs> you know, he's just so calm and cool. He would be, I guess he would be sort of like the accountant type, you know, adding numbers and not really much personality. Nicest guy in the world, but he's just not, he, he doesn't strike you as being a race car driver if you met him at a party or or say, so what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a race car driver. You know, it, you know how he is, Jerry. You've talked yep. to him. He's just yep. very calm and 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 Bobby is exactly the same way. And then he, he goes into the trailer and uh, the transporting, he puts on a driver's suit and he goes out and does two laps, two, 210 down the back stretch at Talladega or Daytona. It just amazes me, but you couldn't find a nicer guy in the world. And, and when, like I say, when you do interviews with him, you really have to pry open 
the the real Terry and to get those interviews out of him and get those answers out of him. But he's just as calm. And that's why they called him the Iceman, because yep. he just is so, so deliberate with his answers. And and his answers are usually eight, 10, 10 words. And that's all you can get out of him. But super nice guy. He's back in Texas, I hear now. He, he was living in the Trinity, North Carolina area, High Point area for many years. And, and he and Kim are back in, in Texas and just retired and just, I don't know, just had a, a tremendous career. And, and I just think the world of him, really, really nice guy. I think the, the, uh, the, the reason why he was so calm and cool, especially after the big wins, it wasn't so much that he was laid back. He was probably in shock. I just won. What? What? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I won. You know? yeah. But, yeah. But, and, you know, yeah. I'm bad. Oh, I was going to say, I can tell you a funny story, uh, a backstory uh, about that particular race in 1980 that he told me recently. He said that when he won the race, uh, he goes down uh, pit road and everybody's jubilant uh, as far as his crew members go. And Back in those days, what they would do is they'd all hop on the race car and find mm-hmm. a place to hang on to, whether it be the B post or the back of the hood or whatever. And and uh, so all the crew gets on the car. Well, they look back on the deck lid, and this guy, this fan, gets on the car, and everybody's kind of high-fiving each other, but they look around, and it's like, well, who is this guy? They, nobody on the crew knew him. And so, okay, well, it doesn't matter. We won the race. You know, I guess he can ride to, to, to Victory Lane with us. So he goes to Victory Lane. And again, they're kind of elbowing each other, like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And so, as it turns out, he was a fan. He just happened to work his way into Victory Lane. Well, Terry and this guy became friends over the years, and they stayed in touch, you know, and they still are in touch. But he was no more than just a fan on pit road, and he got so caught up in the moment. He's like, hey, there's a spot on the deck. I'm going to hop on the car and go to Victory Lane with him. And what was so funny about it was that, that Terry and the guy has have stayed in touch for what 30 years now or more. Wow. And he was not a crew member, but everybody's like, Oh, hey, what the heck? Come, come go with us, you know. I mean, you're on the car anyway, you might as well ride along. And, and that's <laughs> you know, so it's just you know, and and the, the fact that Terry and the guy have stayed in touch all this time is kind of neat. But uh he said I nobody knew him and I didn't know him. And he's in there with Victory Lane with us celebrating and hooping and hollering and uh and you go back and look on the videos, and there's this one guy that has this really big cowboy hat on. I think that's who it is. And you know, like this oversized cowboy hat. And everybody just got who he is. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. Come and go with us, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just kind of neat that, that no one knew who he was, but they stayed in touch with him all these years. It's pretty neat. He was an honorary crew member for the day. He was. <laughs> he should have invited himself, but hey, right. that's okay. Well, you know, it's interesting we're talking about Terry because earlier this year, you know, I do this um, series for NASCAR.com called Where Are They Now? And mm-hmm. I had a chance to talk to Terry. And, you know, like you said, we, you and I have both interviewed him countless times in our careers. And the one thing I've learned about Terry is he is very quiet. He's I mean, I, I think I use the word shy and I also use the word humble in my story. Mm-hmm. And that is very true. He is probably one of the most humble guys you're ever going to want to meet, not just in racing, but just in life in general. I mean, he's just, you know, he's appreciative uh, of all the things that he's uh, achieved, all the good blessings that have come his way. And, you know, he's just, he's just a really good guy to talk to. But one thing I noticed in that interview that I did for NASCAR.com that day with him earlier this year was that you're right. His first few answers to my questions were about eight or 10 words, but then he started opening up and then we started getting into some really neat stories. And it's like, 
he takes the ball and runs with it then. I mean, it's like he's he's almost gone into like a third person kind of uh, diatribe talking about himself. And he was like in awe of what he did, you know, some, and, and he, and he would really, you know, get uh, very um, uh, talkative about some of the things he accomplished. And I, you know, to me, Terry is, you know, he's, he's calm, he's shy, he's humble, but you know, he wouldn't be Terry Labonte if he was anything else, much like, like you said about his younger brother, Bobby, the same, you know, cut from the same cloth. They're both, you know, they, they are very quiet. Uh, but when you get them going, they'll, 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 they'll jump right into things, you know? So, but I mean, the one thing that I always admire about Terry and, you know, we had mentioned earlier is how he won two championships, 12 different years apart with, you know, uh, two different teams and in two different crew chiefs as well, too. In fact, a lot of people don't know that Dale Inman was his crew chief on his, uh, it was a second championship, I believe. And, right. um, you know, that, uh, you know, people automatically assume or, you know, automatically um, uh, connect Dale Inman with Richard Petty, which is obviously uh, Dale, I think was crew chief for, I think 190 some races that Richard was in or 100, 190 some of his wins, I should say that he, that he won, but not too many people know that, um, and I, I think he was a crew chief on all seven championships, by the way, too, for that Richard had. Mm-hmm. But a That's lot of people right. don't, yeah, a lot of people don't know that Dale was also the crew chief of Terry when he won in '96. And you know, as you and I were talking off the air before we started the taping today, uh, I just had a chance to talk to Johnny Benson last week, and he was uh, kind of in that same category where he won the Bush Championship in '95. Then it took him 13 years to win a truck championship in 2008. And, you know, as difficult as the championship is to win once, you know, the old uh, adage that, you know, the first one's always the hardest. Well, sometimes the second one is even harder, especially when there's such a a long period of time as elapsed. I mean, like I said, with Terry, 12 years, Johnny Benson, 13 years. Um, What does that say about a guy like a Terry Labonte that, you know, when people may have thought, well, maybe his best years were behind him. No, not at all. He comes back 12 years later, wins a championship all over again. Yeah, well, that's true. And you know that uh, it's an interesting story about uh, Terry in that respect, because when he got to that uh, near that particular time in his career, things were not going well because Mm -hmm. he was driving for Barry Hagen uh, at that time. And I mean, I guess his very best friend in the whole wide world then was Ricky Rudd because Ricky had decided to to leave Hendrick Motorsports and go on and, and start his own race team. And so they looked around and said, well, who is a guy that we'd like to replace Ricky in, uh, in these cars? And lo and behold, off in the wings and the shadows, so to speak, was Terry Labonte. And Terry was uh, very happy to get the ride because, mm-hmm. like I said, at, at that time in his career, things were not going all that great. And he was thinking, well, I'm not ready to retire, but there's no really good rides out there that I really want to. And he and I talked about this too. And he said, you know, I wasn't ready to retire and there were no good rides. And so what was I going to do? I was in the dumps. Things were not going well. Uh, I'd, I'd looked around and the, and the rides I wanted were filled. And suddenly there's a phone call from Gary Dehart, who was the crew chief from for Ricky Rudd at, at uh, Hendrick Motorsports. and said, Hey, would you like to have the five car? And he said, well, it's like Christmas in June, so to speak. It's like, no, and like, I, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Cause he knew here I'm, you know, I go to talk to Rick Hendrick about it, go talk to Gary. And it's like, well, we want, we want you in our car. And that led, and this was in 94 and that led to getting the 1996 championship, which, uh, 
I mean, you, you go from a car that wasn't a bad car that he was driving for, uh, you know, for Billy Hayden, because he had the success in 84 and they'd spent all those years together, but it was sort of waning at that time. Things were not, it wasn't a powerhouse team and, and NASCAR was changing and, mm-hmm. and the rules were changing and all these things were changing. And it was just time for maybe a change in his career, change uh, in his life and things needed to, something needed to happen. And lo and behold, uh, the skies parted and there's Rick Hendrick on the other end of the phone saying, would you drive my car? He said, heck yeah, I'll drive your car. I I need a, I need a a punch in the arm. I need a punch in my career. And so there it was. And and suddenly his career is back on track again. He's in a good car again and he wins a championship. So yeah, that, that was a perfect time for things to come together for him. And, and it resulted in a 1996 championship. So yeah, perfect timing. And you know, in 96, he was, let's see here, he was, uh, he was pushing 40. He was 39 years old when he won the championship. And, uh, you know, the fact that he still stuck around, he, he raced for another, what he raced all the way until 2014. He was 57 years old. So you're right. He was not ready to, to, to retire or, or, you know, call it a career. And, you know, I think if, if there's one lesson that aspiring racers, even racers of today could learn from Terry Labonte is, you don't give up on yourself. You don't give up on your career. I mean, even if things may not be going well, you never know when that next phone call is going to be, you know, uh, maybe another opportunity that may you know have a better uh, chance of success for yourself. And, you know, that, I mean, that kind of almost gave him like a second life, if you will, when he, when he went to Hendrick and then he winds up winning the championship in 96. I mean, you know, it, 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 it not only, verified the championship he won in 84, but it also verified that he was still a very uh, significant driver, a very successful driver. He could still get the job done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He has so much more life in his career. And, you know, that's the thing about racing is that there are so many uh, parts to your career that you have to, that have to fall into place. And so many times a driver is still on top of their game, but it all depends on what kind of equipment you have under you. A lot of times and you know you're only as good as the car that you have that the seats bolted to in a lot of cases i mean you might have a, a lot of talent left but if things aren't con- the chemistry is not there with the car and the crew and the team and all that i mean you, it's not going to be there and so i mean when you get when you get a call from rick to drive your car it's kind of like a call from heaven in a way <laughs> it's sort of like you know, I mean, okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, one of the best cars out there and, you know, one of the top tier cars, uh, and he was ready. He needed, he needed a real punch in his career at that time. And he was, he told me, so I was really worried because they, things were just not coming together and no disrespect to Billy Hagen at the time, but you know, that we just weren't connecting at the time we, you know, every driver goes through that time in their career when they've had great success with a driver or excuse me, a, a great success with a team owner, or maybe a crew chief, but they reach a point where maybe change needs to come. And he was very much in that position at the time and he needed something great to happen or go to do something else. And suddenly it came, but I want to share a really neat story with you though, talking about Terry and a personal story. Uh, and I think we've covered this before, but, it just it's worth telling again since we're talking about number 44 but 1986 mm-hmm. at rockingham i was doing a, a story about pit crews being a crew member what it was like to actually work on a car during a race and i got i had the invitation to join billy higgins team and terry and and steve meal was the crew chief and so i was sort of a gopher type 
crew member. But that's when I met Bobby Labonte for the first time because Bobby was also a crew member that year before he started driving. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a gag or as, as something to put in the story or whatever you want to say, they allowed me to uh, pull the number out of the hat to see when we qualified. Now, I've shared this before, but I wanted to share it again. But they so the idea is to that you need to get a number high in the in the qualifying order, because later on in the day, the, there's grease on the track, the, the track's warmer, hotter. It's better to qualify late. So you don't want to pull an early number. You want to pull a a late number out of the hat. So Pete Wright is a crew member on the team who'd worked for many crews. And and he said, now, look, here's the deal. If you pick anything in the top 10, we're going to hang you in the back of the truck and we're going (laughs) to lock the door. Okay. So here's the rookie guy pulling the number. Right. I say, so I'll, I'll try my best not to pull anything in the top 10. So Terry's numbers, number 44, right? I close my eyes, say a little prayer. I pull the number. The number I pull is number 44. (laughs) Believe it or not. There's 44 cars in the field. I pull number 44. His number on the car is 44. And lo and behold, Terry goes out and qualifies on the pole. Believe I cannot make this up. Luckiest day of my life. And we ended up winning the race. It was at Rockingham. So as it turns out, I, you know, Pete, I showed number 44 to Pete and we win the race. And then uh, of course he, he looks at me and says, well, that day before, you know, before we won the race, he said, well, we'll let you stick around for the rest of the weekend, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I told Terry that story later when I talked with him recently and he didn't know this all happened. So he's cackling on the other end of the phone line. He said, no kidding. Really? That I said, yes, sir, Terry, that's, that is a true story. And I probably could never have that much luck again. As long as I live, I should have gone right out and bought a lottery ticket. Right, or something. Right, There's right. no way in the world I could ever pull that off again, but it was, we had a, a good laugh over that because pulling number 44, his car was number 44. There's 44 cars in the field and we win the race. So it was just cool. It was, it was fun to be part of that pit crew. And it was fun to write the story about being a crew member and what they go through and getting up at five in the morning and leaving late in the day. And believe me, they put me to work. I had to change oil and I had to sweep floors and and I was pretty sore. I was tired. And I wanted, I said, don't, you know, don't sugarcoat this. I want to be part of it. And boy, they let me stack tires and whatever the case was, but he got a real laugh out of that. He said, I did not all these years. I didn't know that was the story. So it was, it was fun. Well, after that, I mean, not only should you gone out and gotten a lottery ticket, they should have signed you to a long-term contract. It was a good, good luck charm, you know? That's yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah. You, you need to pull the number for us every week. But yeah, I was nervous about doing that because I thought, oh my Lord, this is, you know, their whole weekend is based on how I pulled this number. Because if I pulled something out of the top 10, that could have qualified badly and the whole rest of the weekend could have gone badly, right? And they would have blamed yeah. you. That's right. Yeah, they were, I know. They had never spoken to me ever again. I've never gotten another interview with Terry ever again. But no, it was, it was good but i i could have never pulled that off again in a million years but i did pull number 44 out of the hat so there you go that was my claim to fame for one weekend so there you go when you look at your career that's got to be i would imagine one of the top uh things that happened to you in your career not just you know uh, the accolades and the honors you've won you know as a writer but also you know to do something of that i mean you were doing a story regardless but you know to have that kind of um you know backstory or, or as as the late paul harvey would used to say 
Now you know the rest of the story. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean that that has to be. I, I would think in your career, that's going to be one of the high points of your career. Well, I got to tell you straight up, Jerry, that was the luckiest prayer field, whatever you want to call it. But I was amazed that I pulled 44 out of that hat. Really, I said, you got to be kidding me. I would never be able to do that again. It would, In my case, I would have pulled out the hat size or something, <laughs> you know, the hat tag. Right. You know, I have no luck. I have zero luck when it comes to stuff like that. But it was cool. It was fun. It was a real highlight to the story, too. I was like, great. This is great to help make the story work, but we won the race. That was so, so cool. And, and Terry did dominate that day at Rockingham. He had a great car. And, um, and I was like, how, how fitting to, to be able to write a stadium crash and you know, that how fitting to be able to write the story and we end up winning the race and being part of that and going to victory lane with them and everything. It was really cool. It was a lot of fun, but, uh, yeah, it's just amazing to be able to be part of that. You mentioned about uh, Terry's, um, you know, nicknames. I mean, he was obviously known as the Iceman. He also was known as Texas Terry. He was, mm -hmm. you know, he had a, a number of different names, but I don't seem to recall if I ever heard the story of how he got the nickname of the Iceman. Who, I mean, do you know who gave it to him? I mean, obviously uh, I, it was for his demeanor, obviously, but. Right. Well, yeah, I, I don't recall where he got, obviously, I think one of the newspaper guys or something may have written it like, you know, uh, Benny Phillips, I, I always heard, uh, had given Richard Petty the, the name The King mm. back in 1967 when he won all the races, you know, uh, 27 out of, what, 48 races that year. Mm -hmm. I think Benny Phillips did that one. But I, I was always told the Iceman came from just winning, I mean, just starting so many races. You know, I, I don't recall what that number was. It was like 500 and somebody, something consecutive races that Terry started. But just because he was had such a cool demeanor about him, you know, always, he never got upset. The only time I really saw Terry get upset was when at Bristol, when Earnhardt spun him, you know, for the, those two years, he spun him and he still got the win. Mm -hmm. Remember that year in right. the mid nineties. And then, uh, then the time that he, uh, Earnhardt spun him out, you know, to get the win. That's the only time I really seen Terry mad ever. And, but they all, these other times he would have something go wrong and never showed his, his anger about anything with those two times at Bristol, especially the one time that Earnhardt did uh, spin him out. And so he didn't get the win that I believe it was 95, maybe I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I don't know the year I should know that, but uh, anyway, they, he had his bouts with Earnhardt like everybody else did. Right. right. <laughs> you know, but, one thing, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, in looking at Terry's uh, stats, you know, his career stats, I'm looking at him right now. And, you know, he raced until he was 57 years old. Uh, 2014 was his last year. But I looked over in the next column and, and this kind of really surprised me. I'm sure I've known this at some point in the past, but I guess I'm just re relearning it or reliving it or re-understanding it now you know, for a guy who made 890 starts, and I don't mean this in any disrespect by any stretch, but, you know, he, he only had 22 wins. And what I find interesting is that, you know, he was full-time for, you know, what, probably 30, almost well close to 30, uh, 30 years, I guess, full-time. And he, you know, the most wins he ever had in a year was three. And, you know, I think we're, we've gotten so spoiled over the last 15, 20 years. You know, when you see guys like, Jeff Gordon win 10 races a year or uh, Jimmy Johnson win 10 or it was Kevin Harvick won nine back in 2020. Um, does it kind of surprise you that Terry 
And again, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. I mean, there were just so many great drivers at that time. You had Richard Petty, you had uh, Dale Earnhardt. You mean, that was kind of the era that Jeff Gordon was coming into the, into the, uh, the game. Was, does, it, does it surprise you that Terry didn't win more races than he, than he did? I mean, well, a, a, admittedly, I mean, you know, he, he did have 182 top fives. So, but there, and I'm sure a lot of those could have been wins if, you know, one thing, you know, if he had a break of luck or a little bit extra break of luck, whatever you, you want to call it. But I, I just find that, you know, it's, it's, it's unusual to me that he only won 22 races. Well, there's a lot of those guys. If you look back, um, it's kind of an average in a way, I mean, like Benny Parsons had 18 or 20 and, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of those guys that had about that 20, 22 mark, uh, and they had about that number of, of victories in their careers. Um, I'm trying to think of some other guys that did. So it's kind of a standard in, in a way, um, that that's about the number of victories that they had. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, they had a lot of starts, but uh, kind of, kind of the number that they had. Okay, I'm just kind of curious because I mean, of course, you know, the fact that he drove well until he was 57 years old—that just, I mean, that's an amazing stat to me. I mean, you know, he, he you know, and I, when we saw him, you know, uh, when he was uh, inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, I mean, he looks like he could still get back into a race car today and, and you know, put out some pretty darn good laps. I mean, he he, he was inducted. I mean, he uh, his last racing season was 2014, so that was only what seven, eight years ago. So he's, you know, he's. Um, I mean, he just had a, 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 an ability. I mean, like even Bobby, you know, Bobby's retired now from racing, but he still wound up racing in, in Ray Evernham and Tony Stewart's superstar racing experience this year and has had a great time. I had a chance to talk to Bobby up in Slinger, Wisconsin, Slinger Speedway back in July. That was the uh, second to last race of the year, if I remember right. They had, you know, six races in a row, six weekends in a row. And Bobby was having the time of his life. And, you know, it, it's, it's good to see, you know, guys that, you know, were some of our heroes, you know, either as fans or certainly as reporters, you know, we got a chance to interact with them to see that they're, they're still involved. But you know, Terry, you know, Terry's kind of just, you know, he's kind of um, uh, moved back to Texas. Like you said, he's you know, kind of retired now, still has a, some business interests. Um, you know, he uh, has a dealership with Rick Hendrick. I think it's, what is it? Greensboro? No, no. Yeah. Or, yeah, it is Greensboro. Greensboro. Yeah. Yes, I thought it was mm -hmm. right. So, I mean, but you know, he he's just a guy that you know when when i think of some of the best drivers in the world uh in nascar history he's definitely going to be in my top five maybe you know uh you know there's no question about it in my mind oh yeah absolutely yeah and then you know terry um he did so much in the sport and in the end you know the if you look like i say if you look at bobby's win column terry's win column mm -hmm. jeff burton's win column all those are sort of about the same uh, number of victories but yeah, Terry is just one of those guys. When you when you say the name, it brings a smile to your face. He was somebody a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, even kill sort of guy. He never really showed his emotions much. He did all those things on the racetrack. Mm -hmm. um, I just somebody I have a huge amount of respect for, and I always enjoy talking to him about. But well, we even got into a conversation about hot tubs one time, and how we had the same type of hot tub, <laughs> and we were we were. <laughs> We we're talking about certain um, you know, like the 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 fittings and how a certain fitting would leak and we had to work on, you know, how to get that done. And, you know, he's just one of those down to earth guys. What, what kind of filter do you use and what what how'd you fix this and that? And, 
you know, how much water pressure and I mean, that kind of thing. Somebody you can talk to about stuff way out of the realm of racing that he said, he finally said, well, I just got tired of filling mine up and I just got rid of mine, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And he just, we could compare notes about things other than races and, and it's a, take a crane to get mine to the back deck and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I just love him. He's a great guy. You could talk to him about anything in racing life, anything. And he just offers some great advice. You know, so you, 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 you have such great stories, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, a hot tub with talking about hot tubs with Terry Labonte, that's gotta be, that's yeah. over to a whole different level. There. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you just cry. Well, what did you, what'd you do about, about that filter? And how'd you fix this particular thing and that who, who's your service guy? And, you know, what you do, how'd you get it? And where, where is yours located and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, it's just, just a neat guy to talk to about. If you got a problem, he's there to help you. So there you go. That's like, uh, I know I, I talked to uh, Mark Martin earlier this year and also talked to Pat Patterson, you know, our good buddy, uh, the radio broadcaster. And they were both were saying about how people, you know, fans are just, you know, uh, average, average everyday guys would talk to them about their motorhomes, you know, and, and what, yeah. you know, what they do or where do they camp or, you know, where do they park or, you know, yeah. uh, what kind of, uh, you know, uh, fuel do you use or what kind of oil do you use or how often do you change oil? I mean, that's, I, I think that when we talk about NASCAR and I'm getting to my point is that, is this, we in the motorsports world, and I'm talking about racers, team owners, drivers, PR people, and reporters, we seem to have such a much closer affinity with our brethren in the motorsports world than I've seen in other major sports. I mean, you don't have that, that, that ability to really to talk to guys, you know, on a much more personal level that has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, their particular sport, um, you know, like in baseball or football or basketball or hockey. I mean, those guys, you know, you're, you're lucky to get a few words out of them about the upcoming game or what they, you know, how they played a certain game. But when it comes to motorsports, you know, you can talk to these guys, you know, just you run into, uh, I remember Mark Martin was telling me uh, earlier this year, he said he was in someplace in the middle of absolutely nowhere. I think he said it was Arizona somewhere. And um, a fan recognized, I mean, you know, the first thing the fan says, hey, Mark, how's it going? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you just don't get that in other sports. I mean, and that's what I like about motorsports. That's why I've made motorsports my you know, primary career in terms of sports right. betting. And I'm sure yeah. you're the same way. I mean, you just, you get that feeling. You can just talk to these guys about anything. You're one of the guys, they're one of the guys to you, that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and I totally agree with you. And they're just really down to earth. And that's why fans can relate so closely to them and, and um, I totally agree with you. That's why I love motorsports and the people in it, because we really are all family. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you know, it's not just a cliche. We truly are family. But, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, too, before we get uh, to another topic, Terry Labonte, talking about Darlington, he, he adapted to Darlington so easily in 78, like said in the piece, mm -hmm. finished fourth, come back in 1980 and won his first race there, which is a miracle to, to mix it up with all those really great drivers you know, like Parsons and Earnhardt and Neil Bonnet, Bobby Allison, David Pearson. And then ironically, in 2003, he recorded his last victory in the Southern 500 at the same racetrack. And I just think it's so amazing. And I asked Terry one time, I said, what was, what was it about Darlington you love so much? And why did you perform there? And he said, Ben, I honestly don't know. He said the track, it was just, I, I took to the track 
there in 78, which is a real surprise and finished fourth to even to me won there in 80 and which I always ran so well there. And then ironically, as fate would have it, I come back in 2003 and I, I record my last victory there. And it's just so crazy that I just drove so well there. And it did worry me back when Billy Hagen said, we want to start you there. And he's like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, all right then. But like I said, but it's just like he won his last won his first race there and his last race there. And that's a tough track. It truly is a tough track. And drivers would tell me, Bobby Allison even told me, he said, if you didn't scrape the wall there coming off of what used to be turn four, you weren't doing it right. Right. Exactly. Or turn, turn three and turn three. I meant to say, you're not doing it right. If you don't scrape the right rear quarter panel every time through there, you're not doing it right. What does that say to you? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a tough track. So Terry won his last one there. It's just, it's just amazing how well he did there. And, and that says a lot about his, his talent as a driver. And anyway, just enough said, but just a great guy, a great driver for sure. Right. Well, like, you know, we started off talking about the 44 and let's talk a little bit more about some of the other guys that uh, won in the 44. Terry obviously won the most six out of the 13 wins in the 40, the 44 uh, went to victory lane out of 109 start. One, I'm sorry, 1009 starts rather. And uh, Rex White won two, Lloyd Dane won two, Jim Paschal Bob Wellborn and Curtis Turner all won one race apiece. You know, the, the 44, you know, to me, it's a number that you almost invariably think about 43, Richard Petty, 42, sure. also a petty yeah. number. And, you know, the the fact that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the Petties at one time have the 44 at, at some they, point? They did, yeah. And again, I, I feel like I'm, beating my own drum or tooting my own horn. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to do that. That's okay. another, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'm not trying to do that, but there's another conversation I had with Richard Petty at Pocono in the early nineties. And the story goes that I had written a story about the 44 and NASCAR scene and about what I felt should be done, you know, because you associate the 43 Richard Petty for what, 32 years, mm -hmm. it'd be hard for a driver to get in the 43, that initial year in 1993. So I wrote what I thought he should do is go to the 44 for one season and then go back to the 43. And so he read the column, read the article and he through Chuck Spicer, his PR person said, I, you need to go find Ben. I want to talk to him. So we're at Pocono and Chuck says, Hey, the King wants to talk to you. I was like, Oh crap. What You're in I trouble done? now. <laughs> what have I done? So I really was concerned. I thought I've maybe upset him or made him mad. He said, no, no, he's not mad at you. He just wants to talk to you. So I sat down on the back of the hauler with, with Richard and he said, you know, I really liked your article. It makes a lot of sense to do what you're talking about. And I'm really giving that a lot of thought. I'm thought me, you're talking to me about this. <laughs> really? I mean, I was really touched and honored that he's talking to me about this, but I thought, well, it just, you know, it just come to mind. It's just a thought. I just thought I'd write about it. He said, no, no. He said, you really got a great idea. And so the next year in 93, they went to car number 44. And I thought, wow. I mean, that's just interesting that they gave it some thought. And, and uh, so they went to 44 and then the next year they went back to 43, but it was just too much of a transition to see the King and the, the 43 all those years mm -hmm. and then put another driver in there. It was too much of a culture shock to me. I thought as a fan and more so than a writer. And, uh, and so that's what they did. So yeah, they ran the 44 for a year 
And they had sort of, you know, back in history long, back in the 60s, they had played with 44 a little bit. They, they'd run the 44 at Petty Enterprises some. Um, not a pri- no, not every week, but they had, they'd had some drivers campaign that for Petty Enterprises. And so it just made sense to him and, and Dale Inman. And it, I don't know, it just, that's what they chose to do. And uh, so, and I think, uh, uh, I thought it was a great idea and they did too. So they did it. And so, yeah, 44 is associated with Petty Enterprises. And uh, I just was honored that they, <laughs> they read it and thought it was a, cute, a neat idea. It is. But I mean, you know, I, I just thought how cool and he, but it did scare me a little bit when he said, I wanted to, I want you to go get him and t- I want to talk to him. It was like me, really? So anyway. As, as the old cartoon character would say, heavens to Murgatroyd, exit stage left. You know? <laughs> exactly. That's the way, that's exactly the way I felt. Cause I was like, right. he's never, he's never asked to see me. And now he is. And I was like, Oh crap. That's right. what I do right. now. Well, you know, so. you know, you you raise a point, Ben, and and this is something that I will historically beat this drum till probably the day I die, and and I mean this in a good way. But I want I wanted to get your take because you've been around this game for such a long time. You know, I obviously have been covering motorsports for the better part of the last thirty some years, and but I've also had a lot of experience covering other forms of sports too, as well. And in particular, I'm going to make this kind of an NFL kind of thing, but. Bear with me. I, I do have a point to make here. Believe me. I, I know we're talking about okay. NASCAR, but I do have a point to make here. All right. So I'm from Chicago and I covered the Chicago Bears for a number of years, including the, when they won the Super Bowl in 85. But the one thing that has always bothered me and maybe, maybe bother is not a, bit, a good word, but it, it, it's always surprised me that NASCAR has not chosen to retire some of the more illustrious numbers of cars like a 43 with Richard Petty or the three with Dale Earnhardt. And, you know, the, the, um, you know, you talk to different PR people from NASCAR over the years. Uh, you talk to different, you know, uh, officials in NASCAR and they always say, well, you know, we have a finite number from zero, zero all the way to, or, or zero, if you want to call it that way, all the way to 99. And so, you know, we have to keep car numbers, uh, we can't retire them because we're going to run out of numbers eventually, which I don't necessarily agree with that. And I'll explain why. And this is going back to my NFL uh, analogy here. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I'm from the Chicago and you know, the Chicago Bears, I think they've retired, I think, 10, maybe nine, nine or 10 guys numbers, but they still have, you know, essentially 90. Well, actually, if you add the, you know, the zero, zero through zero, nine, you're talking about another 10. So that's, that's 109 numbers that they have. So if they retire, you know, nine or 10, they still got, you know, 99 or 100 other numbers still to take. And that's kind of the same situation with NASCAR, because, you know, you, you only can uh, field 40 cars in a race. So that's 40 numbers. Whereas an NFL team, they've got 53 guys on their regular, uh, you know, in-season roster from week to week, but they also have guys, you know, when, in uh, with numbers in their practice squads and that kind of thing. They never seem to run out of numbers, though. And I just feel that, again, maybe it's just it's 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 my personal opinion. I mean, I'm just saying this not as a reporter, but just as a fan. I would love to see certain numbers be retired once and for all, so that nobody else will take that number because. To me, when Richard Petty retired, that was the perfect reason for NASCAR to retire the 43. 
And in, in instead, we, you know, we had a number of different drivers, you know, John Andretti, uh, you know, uh, Bubba Wallace, uh, Bobby Hamilton. I mean, there was so many different drivers that, and, uh, you know, obviously now Eric, uh, Eric Jones in the 43. But it's, it's something that I, it's always bothered me that we didn't retire the 43. We didn't retire the three. Uh, I mean, you know, you could make a point for for uh, Jimmy Johnson's 48 or Jeff Gordon's 24. Why didn't we retire those numbers? There's still plenty of numbers around. Tell me your thoughts about that. I mean, am I off base? Because, you know, if the NFL can essentially have, you know, if you were to start an NFL team tomorrow, you'd have essentially 109 numbers, zero and then zero, zero, all the way through zero, nine, and then all the way up to 99. So you add that all up, that's 109 numbers. Am I wrong in, in thinking this, that, you know, we could, we should have numbers that retire because, you know, like you, you mentioned about how petty, you know, he held off the, until, you know, until they took the 44 the next year, then they brought back the 43 a year after he retired. But, you know, like with Dale Earnhardt, you know, the number three, obviously he's tragically killed and they kept that number out for, what was it about 10, 12 years, whatever it was before Austin Dillon took it over, but still it, it just befuddles me why we don't retire numbers in NASCAR. Can you give me a little enlightenment yeah. to that? Well, um, yeah, it's, they they haven't done it. They've never done it. Um, and now, why they don't do it, I, I don't know what they're. I don't know what they're thinking is up to this point. Now, we're seeing a, a brand new thinking in NASCAR now. A brand new group of people uh, in NASCAR that are making major changes. I'm not saying that it won't happen. It hasn't as of yet. Um, you know, if you're going to retire one, uh, it, I guess the 43 would be the one to start with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, why they don't do it, I guess, is because they've, they've tried to protect numbers all this time. You, you open a door when you open, when you retire one. And I guess they're, they've just not been ready to do that in, in this sport. Are they going to in the future? It's possible. You know, if when Richard Petty passes away, it's possible that that number may, may be retired. Mm -hmm. And there's talk about in the past, there's been talk about retiring the number three. Um, it's a, it's a really hard question to answer because I think it's just the mindset of, of the sport where you, where you point out in the NFL numbers have been retired and in professional basketball, they've been retired. It's just not been the mindset of the powers that be in NASCAR to do it. Um, but it, it, I have to admit to you, though, when uh, when Richard did retire, it was so hard to see, and the fans agreed, it was so hard to see someone else drive the forty three mm -hmm. that next year in nineteen ninety three. It was just, it was almost sacrilegious in a way to to have another driver drive it because no one else had ever driven it, other than Lee Petty, and and his father. Uh, no one, to my knowledge, had ever driven forty three other than a family member, you know, such as his father. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very, it was a culture shock. It was for me, it was going to be. Uh, and then the next year they ran 43. Uh, it was just a, it needed a transition in that, that year. That's what I'm saying. So yeah, to answer your question, it, it hasn't been in NASCAR. It hasn't been on the minds of the powers of that be in, in NASCAR to retire numbers. Will they do it in the future? It's very possible. I used to say that will never happen. That will never happen. That will never happen. I don't say that anymore <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because everything I've said will never happen is, is 
the next day it happens. That's so, right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. but but I will say this: if if it were to ever happen, the, the forty three, I think, would be the first one to be retired. I agree, and, and maybe and, the three, the next. But it's just so hard. You know, it's hard to say. And we've gone back to this. You, you mentioned the question a, a episode or two before about why, uh, you know, why numbers could not be associated with particular drivers. You know, why drivers would not carry that number to different teams. The, the driver has, I mean, the number has always been associated with teams, mm-hmm. not drivers. So it, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it goes because, uh, like I say, NASCAR has gone through a tremendous amount of change now, more so than I've ever seen. And so the, the younger generations might decide to do it. We'll see. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to our next uh, segment of the show. Uh, you know, the, uh, the track of the week, Lakewood. Oh, you know, before I go there, I just realized, you know, the first start of the number 44, Ben, you, uh, you uh, did, you dug into your history book and tell me who want, who had the first start of the number 44, because we're going to go way back again on this number too, as well. Yeah, sure. Well, there was a gentleman by the name of Bill Blair, uh, at the Charlotte fairgrounds. The first time we raced June 19th, 1949. Uh, actually the Charlotte Speedway, I said fairgrounds, actually Speedway ran number 44 that year. And, uh, that's the first time it ran. I'll be done. I'll be done. All right. Let's get to the track of the week. And I admit uh, we were talking about this off the air. I, I don't think I've ever heard this Speedway, but Ben, you, it's got a really interesting story from what you were telling me. It's Lakewood Speedway in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, obviously when we think about Atlanta, we think of Atlanta Motor Speedway down there in Hampton. Uh, it's Hampton, right? Hampton, Georgia? Yeah, right. Yeah, it is, which is a little bit south of, of Atlanta. It's called Atlanta Motor Speedway, but it's really in Hampton, Georgia. Right. Yes. So, but Lakewood Speedway has a pretty unique story you were telling me off the air. So uh, I'm going to give you the floor and you tell us about Lakewood Speedway, our track of the week here on the Lights. Sure will. Okay. Lakewood Speedway uh, actually was at the Lakewood Fairgrounds. Uh, it was built in 1916. Uh, it was a one-mile track, and it, it was so unique because, get this, it had trees, pretty good-sized trees and a lake in the middle of it, and uh, they raced horses there, motorcycle races there, 23,000 spectators uh, is what it would hold, uh, and then, uh, you know, by 1938, uh, the track uh, started running midget modified-type cars uh, and they actually raced some, some boats inside the racetrack, too. How about that? They raced some <laughs> boats on the on the lake. Uh, by, you know, after after World War II, it ended. Uh, that, it kind of shut down there for a little bit because of the war. And then NASCAR started running some races there uh, in 1951. Uh, and, of course, uh, and they ran some convertible races there as well. Uh, some ra- some drivers that uh, of note that actually won races there: Tim Flock, Bill Blair, mm-hmm. Donald Thomas, who is the brother of Herb Thomas, who is a NASCAR champion. Buck Baker, Herb Tom- uh, again, Herb Thomas won there in '54. Curtis Turner won there. Junior Johnson, Johnny Bochamp, and Lee Petty, and some convertible races a couple of times: '56 and '58. Joe Weatherly and Fabio Roberts also won there. And by the uh, late 50s, uh, they, they no longer raced there. And, of course, 1960 is when the Atlanta International Raceway was built, who, which, which was later became Nash, Inter, Atlanta Motor Speedway. So, yeah, it was a very unique racetrack. And, like I say, it had trees in the middle. It had uh, a lake in the middle. That's why I called it Lakewood Speedway. But uh, 
but now it's still remnants of that is still there. It's in what I would call in the middle of Atlanta uh, now, and you have to sort of look for it to find it. There's some remnants of the concrete uh, grandstands that are still there. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 still there. Oh, and some notes, a couple of notable things there. Here's an interesting track fact for you. Richard Petty won there in 1959. Uh, the second place finisher protested the result, asking for a recount of the scorecards, and the win was taken away. And guess who the second place finisher was? Da 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 da. Lee Petty. Lee Petty. I was you right. I th- that was just a guess. It was a no, guess. You got it. You got it. Yeah. His dad said, <laughs> Nope, I won the race. They did a recount. And uh, Lee Petty was scored the winner. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So you see, she actually were right about that. And also, the Lakewood Speedway was used in the movies before it was actually demolished. Uh, there was a movie called Smokey and the Bandit with yes, uh, yes, yes, with, with uh, Burt Reynolds, who was also a NASCAR team owner with stuntman Hal Needham. Right. Harry Gant drove those cars in the early eighties, and it was used for the uh, see, uh, some of the scenes in Smokey and the Bandit, and that were filmed there at Lakewood Speedway. And some of the stands that you would see in the movie, where they did some of the, the some of the scenes, had fans in the stands before the stands started to demol- be demolished and, and deteriorated, that was uh, seen in the movie Smokey and the Bandit. So there you go. One of my all-time favorite movies. I'll, I'll be darned. I'll, I'm gonna, yeah. Next time I see that on TV, I'm going to look at that in, in a whole different light because I've often wondered where that racetrack was in the movie, and now you just fill that in for me. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's yeah, man. And, I, I'm telling you, we 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 don't pay we don't pay you enough for this job. I mean, you give us such great <laughs> stories. I'll tell you, you know. Well, the the final race, final NASCAR race, was held there in 1958, and uh, so and then, like I say, the they went on to uh, to race it at what was then for many years called Atlanta International Raceway mm-hmm. that opened in 1960. So there you go. There you go. All right. Lakewood Speedway from Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia, our track of the week here on a lifetime in NASCAR. And let's go into the final segment of today's uh, show. We want to give you a little bit extra time on this one. Um, you know, we lost a absolute heavyweight in motorsports, not so much in NASCAR, although he did have five starts in, in NASCAR, which a lot of people don't seem to uh, remember or didn't even know about. But uh, we lost a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, one of the gentlemen who's probably going to be forever uh, etched in history the Indi- at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He's won the Indianapolis 500 four times along with A.J. Foyt, Rick Mears, and, of course, this year, Elio Casmanevas. Of course, we're talking about L. Unzer. He's our driver of the week. And, Ben, you know, um, I, I got to know L. fairly good, you know, in the late 80s going into the, even into the 90s. And. He was, uh, you know, you could almost draw a parallel comparison between him and Terry Labonte, a guy who was very soft-spoken, very humble, um, you know, let his talent do the talking for him on the racetrack as opposed to, you know, having the, uh, you know, a boisterous uh, personality, you know, like, let's say like a, he wasn't a Daryl Waltrip, you know, El Unser Sr. He was not that, but he was part of a family that, you know, a family of racers. I think I counted six different racers. That includes uh, his father, his uh, three brothers, his son. I think there was one other Unzer there. If I'm, oh, yeah, two uncles. That's right. So there was more than that. So um, all Unzers all raced in IndyCar. But Al Unzer, like I said, did have five starts in NASCAR. But 
you know, I have just so many stories I could tell about about El Unzer, and I think the, the the number one story that I remember the the probably the best was when L Jr. won his first Indianapolis 500. I mean, when L Sr. went up to congratulate him, I mean, I don't think there was a dry eye in the place because it meant so much for L to win four uh, Indy 500s. Bobby, his brother, who we also lost sadly earlier this year from natural causes, he was 87 years old and L was 82 when he passed a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then L Jr., he wins the 500 twice. So nine Indy 500s all uh, have the name or the face of an Unzer on that uh, Borg Warner trophy. And I think that, you know, when you, when you talk about L Unzer uh, senior or, or just call him L Unzer, I mean, the guy was just a, a treat to be around. He didn't really like to talk much like, like you were saying about um, Terry Labonte earlier. I mean, a lot of his answers would be you know, eight and 10 word answers, but once you got him talking, he would definitely open up. I remember I talked with L Oh my gosh, this is probably maybe five years ago, I think it was, six years ago, whatever it was. And we started, I, you know, again, started talking to him about racing his career and that kind of thing. And, you know, he didn't really didn't like to brag about himself, but one of the things he did love to talk about was the Unzer Racing Museum, which is, you know, obviously recalls all the uh, the great moments and great uh, accolades and the great achievements that the Unzer family as a whole, uh, you know, had in their careers. And it's based in their old hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And L just, you know, when we started talking about that, the guy would just go on and on. He just would say, well, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, this uh, about Bobby, or we had this about L Jr. We had this about my dad, Jerry, or, you know, just go on and on. It was just a, a really great interview. And what should have been maybe a 15 minute review. I think we talked for like close to 50 minutes. I mean, it was just wow. uncanny. And I mean, that's, that's what I remember about Al. I mean, not only was a great driver and great racer, saw him in so many races, you know, saw him win a few races as well in person, but you know, um, I, I want to get your take on El Lenzer. I mean, we lost a, a big heavyweight and then we, you know, and I, and I mean this with all due respect, we kind of knew it was kind of coming to me. He'd been battling cancer for somebody. Uh, I read somewhere 17 years he battled cancer on and off. I mean, that's, yeah. it's amazing. That's it is. It really is. What, tell me what Al Unzer meant to you. I mean, even though he was not in the, uh, you know, in the NASCAR world other than for five starts, but still, you know, the name Unzer just is ro racing royalty in my, my opinion. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you hear the name Unzer, I mean, immediately you think Indianapolis and you think racer and you mm -hmm. think, you know, royalty uh, as far as motorsports goes. But the only time I had the honor of talking with with him on was on the phone. And and again, you have to understand I'm I'm more on the NASCAR side today. I'm the IndyCar side, but it was a real honor to to talk with him. And and the reason I was talking with him, I was working on a project with Ray Evernham, and it was a, about a car that he was trying to restore. And it was an Indy car that he, uh, Al, was going to drive uh, in the 1965 at Indianapolis when he was a rookie driver. And the car uh, that he was taking up there did not qualify for the race. And he switched over to a car that A.J. Foyt owned and was able to make the field. But this particular car was a car that, that Ray had discovered in Someone had found it, believe it or not, in a storage unit in Washington State. Oh, wow. And it was in bad, bad disrepair. And, and so long story short, Ray 
acquired the car and took it back to Mooresville to his shop and he was restoring it. And we were trying to look for some facts about the car. And so I was actually asked to write a story about the restoration and about the history of the car by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And so I had the honor of talking to Al about the car and what he remembered about it. And it was just a lot of fun to talk to him about what he remembered. And he was quite on top of what he remembered about his runs in the car. It was had an, uh, had an engine, an Offenhauser engine that was not quite strong enough to make the field. And he remembered that. And, uh, you know, just little things about it. But the car, quite honestly, was uh, had deteriorated quite a bit. And it had been in a storage unit for, what, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so, uh, so Ray bought it and, and knowing Ray, he's an excellent car restorer and, uh, he wanted to get every piece of information possible on the car. And, and I was honored to help him try to do some of that. And, uh, so I mean, just, just the honor of talking to, to Al about it and just, I don't know, it's just, and, and knowing, I mean, being able to find and restore that car that he attempted his very first start in Indianapolis in. And then to go on and win four times, mm-hmm. uh, what what an amazing feat uh, to do it, and uh, a very exclusive club of drivers to to be a, one of just a few guys to win it four times. But uh, yeah, just the, the name Unser. Wow, what a what an incredible guy, what an incredible driver, and uh, to to be able to win the Indy Five Hundred four times is pretty amazing. It really is. I mean, you know, and and the thing that. You know, as when I did my column on him uh, for Auto Week a couple of weeks back, um, I was actually in Indianapolis for the PRI show, which is the big trade show for all racing racers. It's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like SEMA, which is out in Las Vegas every year, and it comes usually about a month after the SEMA show. So, you know, I was in my hotel seven thirty in the morning. I get a, a text saying, "Unzer, one word," and I go, "Oh God, he passed!" And of course, he did. But the one thing that I found really intriguing about El Unzer was that. His last Indy 500 win, which came in 87, um, he wasn't even in that race. I mean, he, um, I th- what was it? Um, uh, it was a Pancho Carter, I think it was, that had, got, had gotten into a bad wreck and uh, in practice, and they needed to get a replacement to fill his spot. And, you know, he had, uh, Al had just been with Team Penske two years earlier. And then, you know, two years after that, you know, he's on his own and looking for a ride. He's in Indy. And, his car was actually on display, uh, the, you know, the car that he r- raced and won the Indy 500 in actually was on display at a shopping center, like a uh, week or two before the actual 500. I mean, it wasn't even, you know, designed to be in the race at all. It was just to be, a, you know, a display. And here he winds up taking a car literally out of a shopping uh, mall and goes out and wins his fourth and final uh, Indy 500. I mean, that to me, you know, you hear of you know, stories that are just, you know, so, you know, hard to believe. I mean, that's right near the top, but in, in my yeah. list, but you know, the fact that he did it shows about, you know, he could take anything. I mean, you know, there's no, uh, we were talking about smoking the bandit earlier and there was a line in there that Burt Reynolds t- is telling Jerry Reed when they break into the, uh, the Coors uh, uh, whole, uh, garage or whole, uh, you know, factory, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, 
Bert's uh, on a forklift and, and Jerry Reed says to him, can you drive that thing? And Bert says, oh, I can drive any forking thing there is. That's kind of like Al Unser, <laughs> Al Unser was. He could drive anything there was, you know? I mean, he could drive a forklift. He might've won the 8,500 in a forklift, you know? I mean, he was yeah. just there. And, and, you know, another thing we didn't even mention about, you know, Al was obviously known for his, you know, USAC slash cart uh, days, but he also was, uh, and it was, this was actually a hallmark of the Unser family, was the Pikes Peak climb. I mean, that thing, you know, that race was very, very big back in the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's still there. It's still, it's lost a little bit, it's luster. But I mean, you know, to race all the way up Pikes Peak is just, you know, uh, to me, a phenomenal thing. In fact, who was it? Um, uh, Sam Schmidt, I believe, did it. Uh, he he it was, you know, even though he got hurt and paralyzed, I believe he actually took a uh, specially adapted car and he drove it all the way up to p- the top of Pikes wow. Peak about, about, about four or five years ago. So, yeah. but Al Lunzer, like I said, you know, just a, a great guy, you know, much, much like we were saying about uh, L or I'm sorry, Terry Labonte earlier, just a very soft-spoken gentlemanly kind of guy. And, um, you know, now at least we know he's, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but it's very true. He's out of his pain and he's probably up there in heaven talking to guys like Dale Earnhardt and folks yeah. like that talking racing, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, well, seven, 17 years uh, battling cancer is quite, quite a long time. And, yes. and, but it shows the determination that that got him to victory lane and, and, you know, having to deal with that for such a long time, it takes a great deal of determination to be able to battle that. And, Anyway, uh, just just an incredible incredible individual, and and hearts and prayers go out to the Unser family, and just a lot of respect for him. But one thing I want to mention, Jerry, you know, early in the show we did scrape the wall slightly, actually all the way down the side of the car, when we said we were not quite sure when those two things happened with Terry Labonte and Dale Earnhardt, so at Bristol. So I want to clarify that 1995 is when. Uh, the uh, Earnhardt got into Terry and spun him across the, the start finish line and Terry won in 95 at the Brist- night Bristol race. And then 1999 is when uh, Earnhardt got into the back of him and, and crashed him to win. And that's the time that Earnhardt said, oh, I was just trying to rattle his cage. <laughs> and that's the night I've actually witnessed some Earnhardt fans ripping their shirts off and throwing them at the fence. That was really? a rough night. Oh yes. That was a night when, when things got very, very heated and some people got really angry and that was a tough, that was a difficult night <laughs> because they got kind of ill with Mr. Earnhardt over that one. He, he spun him out and, and that's the only night I really saw Terry get mad. I'd never seen Terry get mad prior to that, but Terry was angry that night. Yes, sir. I can sir. imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, that was tough. Anyway, we didn't mean to apologize to our listeners because I, I had a little brain fade on, on those two nights, but I wanted to clarify clarify that before he ended the show. And, and so there you go. I, we should have known that earlier in the night, but we looked it up. So there you go. <laughs> we when in doubt, up. look it up. As I always say, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, Hey, Ben, as always, you know, episode number 44 of a lifetime in NASCAR is now in the books and, you know, just these, these uh, shows just keep getting better and better. I mean, I'm just amazed at your recall and the stories. I mean, I, I could listen to you for hours, if not days, you know, just to recall. Well, some thanks, of that story. So, it's a lot of fun doing this with you. It really is. It really is. And uh, I, you know, uh, we're taping this about, 
about, uh, what, five days before Christmas. So I wish you and your family a great Christmas. And uh, But, you know, your Christmas break is going to be over and done because we're coming back on the 27th. We're going to tape our, our pre-New Year's show, if you will, yes. uh, two days after Christmas. So, But I wish you and the family a, a great Christmas. Uh, you know, Have a safe and ho- safe holiday. Uh, hope Santa brings you guys everything you want. And, well, thank uh, you. And I'd like to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year as well. And but we just look forward to, to 2022. We're going to have so much fun with this show, A Lifetime in NASCAR for 2022. And oh my gosh, can't even tell you how great it's going to be. We're going to have so much fun with this. We I really agree. are. I couldn't agree with you more. All right. For Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. You've been listening to A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll be back with our next episode next week. But, I mean, you know, we just are at a point where we keep on topping one week after another week after another week. So episode 45 will be next week. So hope you enjoy this show, and we'll catch you next week right here on Lifetime in NASCAR. Take care, everyone. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.